Well, let's open our Bibles to Luke 6. We're in verses 27, 27 to 36 today as we work our way through this outstanding gospel. Remember that last week we started a four-part mini-series as we're working our way through the book here titled, Our Calling. We're taking a good look at our calling. And today we're in part two and our focus is on kindness when it doesn't make sense. Kindness, when it's not deserved. Jesus is going to teach on this in amazing ways. In the Beatitudes and beyond, Jesus is laying out very practical terms for the life that he calls us to. You know that in Luke 6 here, he's speaking to his disciples, his followers, and he is teaching them how to follow him. It is one thing to say, I follow Christ. It is another to follow him, and it is yet another to follow him the way he calls for it. You see that there's a there's significant distinction between those three. And the words that Jesus is going to give today, I'll just warn you in advance, they are hard to swallow. They are hard to grasp. They don't make sense at first. But God begins to open our eyes. And we realize these commands come with the grace to obey them and the rewards to make them more than worth it. Now, we're going to run out of time this morning. I can feel it already. So so I'm not going to read through the text before we study it. We're just going to um, read it as we study. But let me point out that the first and last verse of what we're going to look at today, verse 27 and 36, are very, very much summary book ends. It starts with love your enemies, and it ends with be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Of course, speaking of our Heavenly Father. As Daryl Beck says in his commentary, the love exhibited here is not ordinary. You and I are going to agree with Beck as we read through these verses. This love is not ordinary. It is difficult and superior. Took those two words away. Indeed, what we're about to read is very hard to comprehend, let alone live out. This is not common love as the world would understand it. But we are talking about, Jesus is talking about godly, supernatural, Holy Spirit, fruit-bearing love. This is the love of God. And as you are going to see, it takes a miracle to live like what Jesus is calling us to. But a miracle is exactly what God wants to do in us. So let's study now in verse 27. Here Jesus introduces this next section of his sermon with these words. But I say to you who hear. Right off the bat, we see that Jesus is about to contrast what was just said. And that would be the woes that we studied last Sunday. If you're here, you remember this. The dreadfully sorry circumstances, the very strong warnings to those who are living selfishly for themselves at the expense of Christ rather than for the cause of Christ. He said, woe to you who are rich. Now, he's not just about talking about having belongings or even having a lot about, of belongings. He's referring to what he goes on later in Luke chapter 12 to say, he's talking about the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. 
So with that understanding, he says, woe to you who are rich. Woe to you who are well-fed, who laugh, and when everyone speaks well of you. Again, all of this referring to living in self-gratification, self-pleasure, and and ultimately, what are we talking about? Self-worship. We have to understand that's what's at the heart of it. So in contrast to living this way, Jesus points to our text today, a distinct set of faith-based love-based behaviors that yield the best rewards. But first observe the last two words in this phrase. Jesus said, but I say to you who hear. He tacked those two words on very intentionally, no doubt. Jesus knows this is going to be hard to hear. What comes next from the mouth of Jesus is only for those who are willing to listen. Those who genuinely are listening so they can follow. Verse 27 continues. But I say to you who hear, number one, love your enemies. Two, do good to those who hate you. Three, bless those who curse you. And four, pray for those who mistreat you. Again, Jesus knew this was going to be very hard to hear. He then gives a few specific examples of what he's talking about, how it is lived out. Verse 29, whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. And whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. My church family, here's the, the fundamental application question for us. Does that define the way you and I live? Do others see us living like this? Even more importantly, does God see us living like this? Of course, none of us have mastered what Jesus just said to do. But is it in our sights? Is it our prayerful ambition? And do we regularly measure our discipleship growth by commands and teachings like these? Make no mistake, this is what it means to live like a Christian. And this is hard to hear. Big picture, we can see that Jesus is addressing our natural response to being offended and hurt. These are are our fleshly instincts. Now to the world, to the Christless mind, what Jesus just said makes no sense. That's the the title of our our entire study this morning, Kindness When It Doesn't Make Sense. Because how does a secular-minded person respond to those who offend and cause him or her harm? The exact opposite of what we just read. Number one, hate them. Two, hurt them. Three, accuse them. Four, curse them. Five, defend yourself. Six, protect your belongings. Seven, demand justice. And eight, Ignore how you would want others to treat you if you were hurting them. That's kind of a deep one. But the more you chew on it, the more more sense it makes. To the secular, godless mind, those eight things I just read off make perfect sense. 
To the secular mind, this kind of defensive, get-even behavior is exactly how you survive in a dog-eat-dog world, right? Jesus begs to differ, and actually He commands to differ. And he gives us these four exhortations followed by a few examples. Love your enemies, do good, bless them, and pray for them. Observe very quickly, love is the greatest command. Doing good involves our actions. Bless them involves our words. And pray, pray for them involves our interceding on their behalf for their spiritual good. This is wholehearted, whole-being love, God-like love. Then the examples. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. Whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. My best understanding of these examples is not that they be, that they be taken as the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. We have to hear what Jesus is trying to communicate through this summary of examples. Now, don't get me wrong. These very well could have literal application. Undoubtedly, they do. But that literalness, literalness still has to be taken in context. I'll explain in a minute. In a minute. But first, allow me to propose my best understanding, my best interpretation of the text, and then I'll explain how we arrive at it. Jesus is not saying to only love, but to keep loving. He's not saying to just love, but he's going further and he's saying to keep loving, to not only suffer, but to suffer long. A parallel example would be uh, in, in the text where, where Peter asked Jesus, how many times do I have to forgive a brother who keeps sinning against me? Isn't it interesting? He even probed the answer. He even uh, perhaps tossed out a suggestion for Jesus. He said, is it up to seven times? And if you've read the text, you know Jesus' answer. He said, no, up to 70 times seven. Now, of course... Jesus didn't mean 490 times, and then you don't have to forgive anymore. He was using a figure of speech. The point was to forgive without end. And in the text today, it is to love without end, no matter what the cost. Jesus knows full well our human nature toward our enemies. How easily fine sentences come from our mouth, or at least to our mind. Things like, fine, I'll do somewhat, something nice one time. Or, fine, I'll say something nice, but don't expect me to do something nice. Fine, I'll pray for them, but I won't like them. Fine, I'll let them get away with it this one time. Now, of course, this sounds childish, but this is the nature of our, our humanity even in its adult form. And Jesus is making this point. When someone slaps you, slaps you, you'll know you truly love them with God's love 
if you keep loving them even when they hit you again. You'll know you love them when they not only steal your coat, but they come back and steal your shirt also, and you still love them. And you'll know you love them when you love them even though you don't get back what they stole. Jesus is clearly communicating the length of love. And like forgiveness, it is to never end. So now that you know what I believe is a proper interpretation of what Jesus is teaching here, allow me to explain. Is Jesus saying, don't protect your loved ones? Every single time someone asks for something, just give it to them without end. Is he saying, never, for, never defend your physical body or possessions? And if someone punches you, ask them to punch the other side of your face too. Is Jesus advocating for unchecked lawlessness in society? The way I put those questions and comments may sound ridiculous, but people actually draw those conclusions from these texts. Dangerous conclusions, misguided conclusions, inconsistent with the rest of Scripture. First point, if you're taking notes, this is why it's so important to make sure our interpretation of one Scripture aligns with the rest. God will never contradict Himself in His Word. He cannot be mistaken or miscalculated in even one sentence or in any action because He is God. He is completely consistent and without error in His acts and in His, in his Word. So we have, te- we have to set texts like this alongside texts like Romans 13. Many of you know this passage, the first four verses. It says, every person is to be in subject- subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which, which exist are established by God. Jumping to verse 4, it says, but if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. So so lawlessness is not to go unchecked in society. Secondly, another way to proof our interpretation of one passage is to compare it to the life of Jesus. Did Jesus give everyone everything they asked for? No. No. When James and John asked to sit at Jesus' right and left hand when he got to heaven, did he give it to them? No. We also saw once already in Luke chapter 4, and we're going to see it again throughout the gospel here, that people tried to physically attack Jesus. Remember, they tried to kill him. That angry church, if I could use that word, that angry group of Jews in the synagogue were so mad at the words coming out of Jesus' mouth, they grabbed him and they dragged him to the edge of the city to throw him off a cliff. Did Jesus just let them do it? And did he keep letting them do it? No. He miraculously avoided them. He defended himself. We studied this in Luke 4.30. What about the Apostle Paul? Did he give every time someone asked? No. In Acts 8, we have Simon the sorcerer. He wanted Paul's miraculous power, or miraculously put, God's power in Paul. He wanted it. 
And Paul refused to give it to him. He refused to even sell it to him. Many other examples can be found in the scripture. So third, we also have to put specific commands in their context. You understand this. Who is Jesus speaking to in Luke 6? His disciples. Those who want to learn from him, follow him, and live for him. And what key phrase did we see last week in verse 22? For the sake of the Son of Man. Speaking of the Son of God. Speaking of Christ himself. For Christ's sake. For Christ's benefit. So so there's an immediate context of suffering on account of Christ. To be clear, this is not suffering for being rude or arrogant or foolish or sinful, but for being faithful to Christ. Jesus is calling us to not only be willing to suffer at great lengths for him and as ambassadors of him, but hear me on this, also to trust him with our suffering meaning to trust him to defend us in his time and in his way. So with that context, Jesus gives these methods for self-defense, if I could call it that. Love, and again, that's Christ-like love. Do good, bless your enemies, and pray for them. Suffer long, be extra generous, and he ends with the golden rule, only it's with a twist here. He says, treat your enemies the same way you want them to treat you. Now, of course, he used the word treat others, so the golden rule here could apply to everyone, but the context of the paragraph is enemies, those who are actually hurting us. So without question, this golden rule applies to our enemies. We'll talk about that in a minute. But let's step back for a second and affirm. There is only one way a person could possibly live this way toward their enemies, and it is faith in God. Lord, this makes no sense to my human mind, my secular mind, but if you say it, I'll do it. I choose to trust you. My church family, it takes faith to let God fight for you. To let God defend you when you're attacked and provide for you when you're robbed. It takes faith to let God give vengeance The Apostle Paul, he gives excellent perspective and understanding of this matter when he says, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Listen to what Paul says next. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The apostle Paul got it. He understood the sermon on the mount. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is Romans 12, verses 17 to 21. It is obvious that we have to believe in miracles to live like this toward those who hurt us. Do you believe in miracles? 
Again, this makes no sense to the secular mind, but it begins to make profound sense to the spiritual mind. Many of us understand what it's like to live with hatred in our heart. We understand the toll it takes on us to carry, bitter, to, to carry out bitterness and to fight for our own justice. I don't doubt we've all tried it. Let's be honest, maybe we're struggling with this kind of unbiblical, ungodly, disobedient self-defense even right now. It's important to recognize the ascetic effort it takes to always have to carry out vengeance, to get even, to always set people right who offend us. You see, think about this. The end goal of, secular, of a secular response toward an enemy is to eliminate them or to at least get even with them, to reciprocate pain. That is the end goal of the secular mind, the fleshly mind. But the end goal of a spiritual response is to see them reconciled with God. You see the polar differences here in the text. One is to eliminate or get even, or at a minimum, to stop them from causing pain, whatever it takes, but the other is aimed at seeing them reconciled with God no matter how much pain we have to endure in the process. Vastly different goals and approaches. But how does a person actually inspire enemies toward a reconciled, redeemed relationship with God? We're looking at it right here. Love them. Now, if we're honest, our first response to hearing this might be something like, that'll never work. <laughs> Friends, it worked for God. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You hear me quote that verse often. But two verses later in verse 10, Paul goes on to define sinners even more clearly. He says, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life while we were enemies. Multiple scriptures state the same truth about each and every single one of us. In our lost sinful state, we were enemies of God. Not just sinners, enemies of God, opponents of God. And as his enemies, he reconciled. He lovingly and sacrificially gave his son so that through grace, and faith, we would be saved, forgiven of all our sins when we repent of sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, as Scripture says. Here's the amazing thing in this text. We saw this last week as well. Jesus is not asking anything of us that he has also not already done himself. He has lived out this text. For those who have ears to hear, those who are willing to accept the word of God, loving our enemies begins to make spiritual sense, 
I like to think of it this way. As far as your and my part goes in God's sovereign plan, what has greater potential to move our enemies to be reconciled to God? Hating them or loving them? Hurting them or doing good? Again, what has higher potential to woo a person, to move a person, to turn to God? You really think they'll be drawn to Christ when you curse them or bless them? When we get even or demonstrate faith-based, empowered, unshakable, long-suffering like Christ did for us? Of course, it's the latter in all these points. To the spiritually-minded person who believes in the miracle-working power of God, both in their own life and through their life, the loving way is the far more powerful way, far more potent than vengeance, far more Christ-like. But Jesus' lesson here is not over. We have to keep reading to get the big picture that he is trying to convey. Jesus is about to pre-correct the self-righteous thoughts that he knows are about to enter our mind at this point in his teaching. Thoughts like, I love people. I do lots of good. I'm generous. Look at verses 32 to 34. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. Ouch! <laughs> Jesus is helping us to realize that we are not fulfilling love to that level, the level He is calling us to when we do good to our friends when we do good to good people. And yes, of course, there is a time and a place to do good, especially to the household of faith, Galatians 6.10. But I also, and you also have to pause to evaluate our goodness, our acts of kindness, to see if we readily and willingly also extend them to enemies as well. Look at all the things I gave away this past year. Yes, but was it only to my circle of friends who give back? Lest we think too highly of ourselves, Jesus reminds us even sinners do that. Meaning, even atheists do that. Even the ungodly do that. But what about to the poor who cannot give anything in return? Or even harder, what about to those who have been unkind and hurtful to us and do not deserve our goodness? Jesus is about to go there. It's so powerful. But first, listen to his summary of these commands and the reward, the motivation he gives in verse 35. He says, but love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. There's the summary. These are just some of the marks of a true follower of Christ, a true Christian. This is the blessed life. Remember, it's all on a foundation of beatitudes, blessings, happinesses. Would we put this text in the category of happinesses? We know he's saying this is the blessed life because he then says, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. 
Friends, how much does God have to offer to persuade us to show the love of Christ even to those who are hurting us? Are you and I aware of the promised reward? When Jesus says the reward will be great, are we passively thinking, well, well, how great? As if once we see how great it is, then we'll decide if it's worth it or not. When he says, you will be sons of the Most High, are we thinking, well, what does that mean? I mean, what's really in it for me? My church family, let it suffice to say that when Jesus, the Son of God, uses the word great, the reward will not disappoint. Now, to be clear on this point of being sons of the Most High, at first glance, this could easily come across as works-based salvation. Are you seeing that in the text? If you do all these good things toward your enemies, I'll make you children of God. I'll forgive you of your sins and save you. Think with me. Does that align well with the rest of Scripture? No. Scriptures like Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, which state that no works of righteousness can save a person. Now, it does not align well with the rest of Scripture. We know this. Allow me to propose a very simple and practical understanding of this statement that does align well with the rest of Scripture. The interpretation is this. You will be acting like the the genuine children of God that you are when you love your enemies. You will be living out your salvation. You will be living out your sonship, your daughtership. Your good works will evidence that you are a child of God. They will evidence your salvation. For example, when you move into town and your 17-year-old son joins the, the local high school football team and scores three touchdowns in his first game and you proudly say, that's my son. Are you saying that the good plays made him your son? No. That's not the point. You're identifying the son he already is, and you're identifying that he is yours. You're affirming his talent and where he obviously got it from. You get the picture. Loving your enemies is what sons and daughters of God do. It's part of their identity. It's who they are by calling, by grace, through faith. The Apostle Paul speaks very well to this when he wrote to the church of Ephesus and said, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. There's the parallel. Imitate God like his beloved children because that's who you are. And then he says, And walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. I mean, even just from that text alone, do you realize that when we suffer on account of Christ, when we suffer at the hands of others, it is an offering and a sacrifice of suffering to God. Not primarily to the other person. We don't suffer in love because they're worth it. We suffer in love because God is worth it. And yes, I dare say also, those enemies made in the image of God are worth it. 
People often ask me about the assurance of their salvation. Part of what I share is this. Are you living like what the Bible says a saved person does? A growing sorrow for sin, a growing love for righteousness. Can God and others tell that the Spirit of God dwells within you and is bearing more and more spiritual fruit? Is your mind being transformed so that you are proving more and more the, the, the will of God, which is good and acceptable and perfect, Romans 12, 1 and 2? Here's another evidence of genuine salvation. You love your enemies. Those who hurt you, those who curse you, those who rob you, you respond to them like Christ responded to you when you were his enemy. Just like he responded to me when I was his enemy. Demonstrating the love of God by the grace of God to those who hurt you won't save you. It will assure you of your salvation. I so appreciate this text in Luke because it has reminded me to keep my eyes on the prize, not on my enemies. It reminds me to keep my eyes on the power of God, not the pain from others. The Word of God is reshaping. No, no, it, it's, it's rebirthing my values and my thought processes. Like you, I don't know how much more life I've got left. I don't know when Christ may return and call us back home. But when that buzzer goes off and it is game over, and I am suddenly standing in the presence of God, I want him to find me loving my enemies. For sure, that is not an ambition that we put in our heart. It's an ambition that the Spirit and Word of God places there. Yes, we fall short, but by the grace of God, we keep moving in the right direction. We keep obeying. True and faithful disciples of Christ show sacrificial love and blessing and goodness and prayer toward those who genuinely hurt them. Do you know why? Verse 35 gives the answer. Speaking of the Most High, God the Father, it says, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Church family, let those words sink in. God himself is kind to ungrateful people. He is kind to evil people. How many times have you known you should do something nice to someone who's offending you? And the thought that prevented you from doing it with something like this. They don't deserve it. They wouldn't even appreciate it. I've been kind before and they threw it back in my face. I've gone the extra mile before and they didn't even notice. Maybe even they even mocked us for it. Maybe they even reciprocated with more hatred. Friends, God himself is kind to ungrateful and evil people. If it's right for the honorable and most highly esteemed God of heaven to behave that way, how much more you and me, saved sinners. Before we start to wrap up here, it's important for us to consider some very practical and very personal application. 
because we know this is where God would want us to go. Are you ready for this? If God wants us to love our enemies, how much more so our own families when they hurt us? How much more so the people in our own church when they wound us or mistreat us or speak ill of us wrongfully? I suspect when Jesus taught here about loving your enemies, he wasn't talking about the next nation over. Now, surely this included the Romans who controlled the Jews at that time. But I have to believe that Jesus was talking more about the guy across the aisle. The friend who's acting more like an enemy. The neighbor who's making life miserable for us right now. The spouse we once saw as our dream come true, but now we feel is more like an enemy, even though we don't want it to feel that way. You see, we don't get to define enemies in the text. Jesus defined them right here. It's the people, whether near or far, who oppose us, act hurtfully toward us, whose words tear us apart, and who treat us wrongfully. Verses 27 to 28. To them, Jesus says, love them. Do good. Bless them. Pray for them. Give generously. Don't demand your rights. Treat them how you would want to be treated. If you're in a relationship that is causing deep pain right now, if you're searching for answers, you're searching for direction. You and I are looking at it right here in the text. Love them, do good, bless them, pray for them, give generously, don't demand your rights, treat them how you would want them to treat you. I know that's hard to hear because I'm a human too. But it's good to hear because Jesus said it and he only says what is good. He only speaks truth. The law of liberty, as James so wonderfully calls it. We note here in the text that God is kind to people who still sin. You realize that's you and me. He's kind to people who do evil, wrong things. You understand, that's you and me. Aren't you glad that God himself is kind to ungrateful and evil people? The last verse says this. It's the bookend. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. By nature, the word mercy refers to kindness given when it is not deserved. Kindness given when judgment was warranted. That's how God has been and is to you and me. Without question, this is one of the most beautiful yet difficult to grasp attributes of God. His mercy. He shows kindness to us beyond our comprehension when it was not deserved he is kind to evil and ungrateful people. If you're keeping track of the attributes of God, make sure that one is on your list. 
And now he calls us to the same. Christian friend, are these verses our aim in life? Are these our roadmap? Our purpose? Do we realize this is our calling? I know it doesn't make sense. Until we actually listen to the wonder of what Jesus is saying. This is the blessed life. Hear me on this. It's passages like this that help us to understand that God's salvation was made possible through ultimate sacrifice. And the gospel message is carried the same way by you and me. Sacrifice. Unending love. Even when it's not deserved. Daily, we are to lay down our rights, our privileges, yes, even at times our belongings and well-being as God leads so we can show his unspeakable love and mercy to others. It's Thanksgiving week. Gratitude is the theme. How do we know we are grateful? One of the chief ways is captured right here in verse 36. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. You see, gratitude is not just appreciative, it shares. Thanksgiving gives. It recognizes that undeserved goodness has been, be, has been received and be de, by design, it is to be freely shared. This is godliness. This is our calling, amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. You have not called us to anything you have not done yourself. Thank you for loving us, for dying for us, even when we were your enemies. Help us to be so overwhelmed, so moved in gratitude at the unconditional love you gave us that we, by your grace, are inspired to go and give the same to others. Thank you, Lord. You are worthy of our obedience, our little sacrifice. You are God, and today we worship you in thanksgiving. And all God's people said, amen.